Welcome to episode three of the Corporate Real Estate Insider. We are back. I'm here with John, Owen, and Brian. Today we are going to be covering some of the biggest headlines coming out of the corporate real estate world over the last couple of weeks. We will also be covering some of the smartest moves that we've seen companies and directors of real estate make on behalf of their organizations, as well as the opposite, some of the kind of bizarre, silly, uh, not smart moves that we've unfortunately seen companies make as it relates to the real estate. We're coming at all of this through the lens of how do those that are leading companies and organizations, how do they help optimize the real estate and best align the company's real estate with their overall business strategy? First, we're going to jump into news and we're going to start with Brian today. Thanks, Tucker. Uh, I think the interesting thing I saw this week in the news side is Bloomberg is reporting that there's already, and we've been talking about landlords being in a tough place. Bloomberg's reporting there's already $175 billion in distressed real estate assets, real estate debt um, in the marketplace today, which is four times the next largest asset class uh, and continuing to grow every day. I mean, we're talking about some of the, the, the trophy names, the bellwether names. I mean, there's reference in the article of, of Brookfield having two assets in downtown L.A., two towers that they're already signaling to the marketplace that they may not be able to refinance. So, uh, you know, it's, it starts with a whimper and it, it turns into a roar pretty fast. And I think that uh, this is the leading edge of what we're going to see landlords entering a market of real, real challenge to refinance their buildings and to hold on to assets around the globe. Brian, what do you think the timing is for the whimper to turn into a roar, as you said? I think 2023 is going to tell us a lot. I think I think it's going to accelerate, and a lot a lot depends on uh, you know on some of the other news topics we have in the economy. But I think 2023 is going to tell us a lot. I don't think it happens overnight, and it, it certainly doesn't. Uh, I think it peaks in 23. Yeah, I think it's important as we talk about this to know sort of how this happens, right? Like, say Brookfield fails to refinance these two towers in downtown LA, this ultimately goes to a receiver then um, is in charge of disposing of the asset. And when that happens, like this is a multi-month, sometimes a multi-year process of being able to um, sort of get these buildings out of uh, receivership and through a bankruptcy process and sold to a new owner that can take you know control of the asset moving forward. And the result of that happening is eventually that these buildings are going to be sold to somebody at a much lower price. And that lower price is then in turn going to allow them to do deals much less expensively than the rest of the market. Um, and even if you're a very well-capitalized owner in downtown Los Angeles right now, the fact that Brookfield, which is the largest owner of office space in downtown LA, the fact that they have some distress coming, is going to negatively impact their ability to price their own buildings that they'll retain control of. And every other owner's real estate in downtown LA is going to be negatively impacted because of losing this asset. Yeah, and if anyone has had experience dealing with receivers, it effectively takes the building out of play until it's resold, or it's a very, very cumbersome process to do a deal with a receiver. I've had tenants that have tried, and the deals have made sense for both sides, and you still can't get it done. So you end up moving, or you end up you end up making different arrangements, but it becomes a very, uh, it effectively takes the building out of play for that period of time. I've seen, it for, I've seen it firsthand, guys. I, I have two transactions right now. One of significant size is 28,000 square foot office tenant. One's a 7,000 square foot office tenant. Two completely separate transactions. 
uh, in buildings that have um, the landlord has defaulted on their obligations. So they're going into receivership right now. And it's a nightmare um, because the bank doesn't know what to do. They're not an asset manager. And so it leaves my tenants and my clients in a bit of a quagmire trying to figure out what to do if they want to stay in the building. And it's rather difficult with the lease expiration date on the living horizon, which is really forcing us to probably relocate because of the uncertainty of staying in the building and what will happen long term. It's a, it's a, it's a mess. Well, Owen, you and I have a client in San Francisco where the rent approaching the renewal, the, the new market rent is roughly 50% of what they're paying today. So, you know, in a market like that, with a 50% decline, that's going to wipe out everyone with a 70% loan to value. There's just no equity left. They're upside down. So none of this should come as a, as a surprise in the most hard hit markets. I was saying not only are the landlords in distress, but in this one case in, in Seattle where my client's in the, the single tenant in the building, 28,000 square feet, um, even the lender realizes the distress they're in and has approached my client about buying the building at a significant discount to market because the lender doesn't even see any hope into the future, um, for, particularly for this asset. And so there is a silver lining in all this, but it's just a matter of where could that silver lining be uh, realized to the benefit of the tenant, not always the case. Do you all think that we're at the, the spot in the real estate cycle where the normal part of a lease due diligence process for a large scale or even medium or small scale tenant requires that you start looking at the capital stack, looking at debt maturities, figuring out what is the real default risk of this landlord? And if they do default, what happens to us? Yeah, I, honestly, since the 08 crisis for large transactions, I've never stopped looking at that. It's a leveraging tool uh, that was kind of uncovered. And now it's it's more important than ever because it's not only what the what the default risk is. I mean, there's there's protections in a lease, and if there's not good protections in the lease, that you and the attorney didn't do a good job. Um, it's really about what are the what are motivations of these owners, right? And and if owners want to hold on to buildings and they're willing to put capital in, they need participation of the tenants to step up and extend their leases, to do to do restructurings of leases. Like there's really good ways to have a win-win and your clients save significant amounts of money. They don't have the relocation cost if, if ultimately you don't want to move. So it's good to know anyway. It's good to, it's good to be prepared for those, for those conversations. And if there is truly risk, like you, you need to identify it. So let's talk briefly about the lease protections that Brian's talking about. So the best way to protect against your owner defaulting and the best thing you can get in a lease is something called a subordination non-disturbance agreement. And effectively what it does is concurrently with signing the lease, you get the lender to agree that if they take control of the asset because the owner defaults, that they will continue to honor your lease obligation, uh, even in the event of an owner default. One thing I'm curious about, have you all seen uh, any of these landlords being more willing to give uh, subordination non-disturbance agreements or as brokers call them SNDAs because of their financial position? And are you seeing lenders being more likely or less likely to agree to these because they don't want to get caught in a position where um, they have to honor a lease that puts their building underwater if even what they might be able to even sell it for? I've actually had a lot of land landlords be amenable to providing them, knowing that it's a topic of conversation amongst the world right now, uh, especially those in commercial real estate. Um, not too much trouble getting them from the lender. Uh, the, the biggest thing is it's a matter of like how big the transaction is. So. If, for example, you know, we're representing a company that's looking for 2,000 square feet of office space, it's unlikely we're going to get an SDA if they're in a million and a half square foot building. Um, but if you're a significant component of the NOI, meaning the net operating income of the building, 
Um, maybe you're 15, 20,000 square feet or larger. I've yet to receive much pushback, especially when I raise why, the, why we're concerned. It depends on the circumstance, right? Uh, the times when I, my trigger goes up to start thinking about going and getting an SNDA is, for example, if the tenant is investing a significant amount of their own capital into the building, which would get washed if the landlord goes into a default and the owner chooses not to recognize or maybe uses that as a tool to renegotiate the lease. To protect that investment in the building, we need an SNDA. And in that circumstance, I think a landlord would be crazy not to give it. Yeah. I agree. I'm finding that it's easier than normal to get SNDAs for even medium-sized tenants these days because there's a very real reason for everyone to want them. And even in uh, a market period where we weren't seeing potential widespread defaults that could be coming later this year in 2024, it still was very easy to get these for medium-large-sized tenants, particularly when they were investing money. So, John, that's a really good point of a type of scenario where you, you really, regardless of the situation, even if a uh, landlord might own their building all cash or something. You don't know if somebody's going to come in and buy the asset three years into a 15 year lease where you just invested, you know, $20 million in, in you know, uh, upfront cost to outfit the building perfectly. Or if you might be in a building where say it's a, a GMP facility or a really expensive laboratory build out, or you're uh, building out a sensitive compartmentalized information facility for secret top secret level work and you're dealing with the Department of Defense accreditation that isn't easily movable. These are all situations where you really need an SNDA no matter what, even if you think you have a super well-capitalized landlord that you couldn't possibly imagine defaulting. It's very easy to get it in those situations too. Yeah, and the lenders want them now too. I mean, what lender doesn't want a subordinate position? And the, the non-disturbance is a rite of passage. If we're gonna recognize that lender in the transaction, we're going to get protected to do it. Uh, no questions. Just, yeah, we, wouldn't, the, it's a, we wouldn't do it. The last thing I want to note is that you might be thinking, well, why doesn't every single lease have an SNDA? Well, obviously, lenders don't want to go through the hassle, nor does the landlord for a 2,000-foot deal or a really tiny transaction that's short-term or doesn't have significant upfront costs. For larger transactions, the, the only real challenge that you have in doing these is that depending on the lender of, of the building, these can take a very long time to get done. I've been in scenarios where you literally spend 60, 90 days because the loan is some CMBS pooled loan and you have to contact the manager of this loan pool and get them to agree to do it on a very specific loan. So they're sitting there saying, hey, we don't have some huge incentive to rush this. And I've actually had enormous lease size deals tied up where the landlord's freaking out, tenants freaking out, we're freaking out, and nobody can push this thing forward any faster just by nature of the type of debt that a property might have. Exactly. And if you really want it, if you really need it, you need to have it before you sign or simultaneous with signing the lease. Oh, yeah. To simply use at a landlord saying they'll use best efforts, it just isn't good enough if you've got 12 million bucks at risk. You actually need a signed SNDA at or before signing the lease. Uh, John, yeah. you, you bring up a great point. I mean, landlords try to put into leases and have it be post-execution that they'll use best efforts or best reason. Actually, not even best efforts, because best efforts is a standard that's a very high, right? Best efforts is all reasonable efforts plus unreasonable efforts. So they'll put, they, they typically use a much lower standard. So they'll commercially reasonable or reasonable efforts, which just means they're going to try that the lender says, no, they're going to walk away, right? So that you have to, you have to bring that forward and have it signed at the same time, or all of your negotiated leverage is gone, and you're at the mercy of the landlord and the lender. 
where because you've already given them what they want, which is a signed lease. What do you guys think about, for those of you, all of us were in this business during the last recession, and I remember in 2008, 2009, when the whole financial collapse happened, people started real estate investment firms based on the thesis that all these buildings were going to come back, they're going to be sold in the courthouse steps, they're going to be bought for pennies on the dollar, and there was real value to be had long term. So a lot of private capital was sourced to make investments in buildings that, again, were expected to go into receivership. What actually ended up happening was the exact opposite. A lot of lenders were like, I don't know what to do with this thing. I'm not an asset manager. I don't want the building. And so in, a, in some kind of a way, the landlords really forced their lenders' hands to restructure the debt, which allowed the current owner to keep ownership of the building, keep operating it um, for the sake of not going into receivership. And that was not what anyone even thought would happen. A lot of people were rather, rather surprised, but that happened nationwide. Do you guys think that that's happening again? Or do you think this time, you know, the threat is real and that these things will actually go to receivership? I, I think I, I think at that time we had an underlying economy that was still very strong. The financial crisis was really a financial crisis. The underlying economy and the real and the real GDP growth was still there. It just got it just got sidetracked through Wall Street and the lending institutions. So the buildings were full. Landlords had assets that were performing um, and now we've got half empty buildings that people want to get out of so as leases roll we're going to be faced with a, a period of time where there's going to be vacancy that we have never seen before in some of these downtown locations because tenants are downsizing or they're pulling out altogether so the low rise of these buildings who's going to lease them and i think it's going to be a very different story than than 08. i think the economy's the economy and, and work from home and the, the changing use of office space. I mean, the city of Boston just hired a whole team of consultants to figure out what to do with, I think the state of the city, but it's for buildings in Boston, what to do if they can turn office buildings into residential lab or some other use because they see that their people are never gonna come back. And these are government employees. One of the other really big headlines of the last couple of weeks has been the mayor of D.C. coming out and demanding that the you know federal administration force GSA employees back because they make up about a third of all of the office space occupancy in D.C. What do you all think will actually happen? Will the mayor of D.C. prevail and get all of these people back? Uh, will they not? Curious what you all think. I I am skeptical. I don't think that everyone will come back. Um, in, in droves. I mean, maybe the LC people start to trickle in, but I think a lot of it depends on the success or, or possibly lack thereof of the private sector. You know, this past week, you know, Morgan Stanley reiterated that working from home is not an option. Goldman has obviously reinforced that time and time again. But most recently, since our last pod, you know, Starbucks, Howard Schultz is calling people back three days a week. Disney, Bob Iger is calling people back four days a week. So we're starting to see more and more of this happen. We'll see if momentum picks up or if it just kind of fizzles. But I tend to believe that the GSA is going to be largely contingent on the success uh, of the private sector coming back before they ask everyone to come back themselves. That's my own hypothesis. Something tells me that the uh, federal employees have uh, a fair amount of leverage in that uh, employer-employee relationship. <laughs> yeah, I have actually, I, I had no idea, Tucker. It's a good question. I honestly, because sometimes those decisions are not 
made based on the needs of the people or of the of the organizations, their political, and who the hell knows how those are made, right? So it's hard to predict, but I think the city needs it. I think I think that uh, they either need to free up the space or they need to come back because, you know, capitalism has a way to make those buildings into something else, right? Someone's going to figure something else out. Well, that's what the mayor was basically saying was like, hey, if you're not going to come back, let us do something else with these buildings. We need occupancy downtown, whether it be apartments, whether it be you guys, the GSA, or, or the private sector. But, you know, our downtown is really, and I was there not long ago for a tour, and it, it really is as bad as it sounds. Um, it's very, very quiet. Um, and mayor's um, focused on changing that. And it's, it's worth noting, she, like the Biden administration, is a Democrat. So it's not like it's a Republican versus Democrat thing. Um, she's an openly, you know, member of the Democratic Party, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it's faced in every city. I mean, it's 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 oversized in D.C. because it's just so much more federal employees, right? GSA people. But every city faces that. Like I was saying, Boston's faced with the same, you know, this, the same challenges. So I think every city's facing it. And it's not a political one. It's really a. It's the same thing happened in the private sector. We we already draw the line and. Uh, It'll, you know, the, 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 the power of the employees when they're union or, or when they're, uh, you know, federal GSA employees is probably much stronger, much, the pendulum is definitely more towards the employee, I would say, than the employer than the private sector. So, uh, I don't know, it could be my answer. <laughs> yeah. Another headline that came out this week that I'm just curious, what you think? I, I suppose that this is slightly real estate related, slightly social related. So, um, TikTok in the US came out and said that uh, if you are working away from a office where you're not physically able to come in, that your job is at risk and you might face disciplinary action or termination. So you get an email like that at a time where you've seen the most widespread tech layoffs ever, right? And you go, okay, if I move back to San Francisco or Salt Lake City or LA or like wherever TikTok has offices, which they have offices in those cities, but um, and I'm sure many more, do you move back only to get fired like a month later? Like how, like, what do you do? Do you just say, you know what, it's too risky. I'm going to take my chances here. Or do you actually go back and try and keep your job? It's a really weird, <laughs> tough situation to be in. You also work for a company that's in the headlines every day about potentially being shut down in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Your level of confidence in your job cannot be very high to TikTok. Yeah. That just adds another layer. But what do you do is right. I mean, I saw a thing from a, an employee, an engineer at Meta, bought a $300,000 condo in, on a cruise ship and is sailing the world working. <laughs> like, what's he going to do if he gets called back? I don't know. Uh, wow. Interesting. Okay. Any other headlines before we jump into main <laughs> topics for today? Yeah, I've got something I want us to try and solve. Um, I contend that things are not always as they seem. And I wonder, you read all these articles about inflation, about interest rate hikes, about a coming recession. I just don't know. I'm not sure, I'm not sure things are as they seem. Like inflation, Infl I'm an econ major. Inflation is supposed to be this wage price spiral. That's not what's happening. Like what we went through with this radical supply side shock of the pandemic, you turn the big machine off and then turn it back on. And of course there's disruption all over the place. But what we're seeing now is like prices increasing, but it's not the classic wage price spiral. It's just companies raising prices. 
at a time, by the way, where corporate profits are at an all-time high. So maybe they're just raising prices and getting away with it. I'm sorry, my liberal bent may be coming through on this one, but uh, what do you think? John, I think, I think you, took, you painted a pretty broad brush, personally. So like, are you considering, like, do you, is this down to, like, the, the and I don't want to get too political, but the statement by uh, politicians that the, the local gas companies are gouging people and charging too much at the gas station, where their margins are pennies on the dollar, right? So, I mean, is it the oil companies where, where – Prices of oil are set on global markets. I mean, a lot of things, a lot of commodities, we're not setting the prices. And yes, the oil companies are making more more money when the prices are high, but they're also not investing what they should be investing in the long term because of all the political risk created from the uncertainty of the current state. So if you listen to these large companies, they're not investing 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the future. Um, so they're sacrificing profits today for who they're going to be in. 10, 20, 30 years, right? So I, I think I think I think there's it's a very difficult thing to paint a broad brush to think that there's a malicious or a opportunistic approach to uh, the profitability of companies today against you know and putting it on the backs of a consumer. Well, I just don't I think it's an easy out for companies and people to say that. Where it's just I, the fundamentals to me don't say it. I don't know. Except I take exception to the idea that they're sacrificing profitability today. They're not. Corporate profits are at all-time highs. Like, instead of investing money in manufacturing capacity, they're actually buying stock buybacks. So, financial John, here, engineering. here's how I think about it. The entire premise of your argument is that they're increasing prices because they can. Businesses should increase prices if they can. Like, the point of a business is to make money. So, like, the basic premise of your argument here is that they didn't increase prices before even though they could have. I think the better way to look at it is that they didn't increase prices before because they didn't feel that they can. And they feel like they can now because of this massive stimulus that we had, people not spending money for two years or a, at least a year because they were mostly at home. And now there's this massive amount of discretionary um, cash to spend by consumers and they still haven't run out of money. So I think the whole point of this interest rate is to get people to spend less money and that will eventually hit a point where these companies say, you know what, I can't raise prices anymore because the American consumer is so damaged by the increases in their car payment and variable rate mortgages, which it's worth noting that the amount of variable rate mortgages that exist today versus what existed in 2008 is so dramatically less. But still, interest rates still severely impact the American consumer. And I think that these companies will continue to increase prices, and I would argue that they should until they feel like they can't. Well, okay, and, and we, can we, we can abandon this, but all I will say was what else has changed? But you, you couldn't get away with raising prices before because there was competition that would windfall, would come in and quash windfall profits. Is that less so today? Is there perhaps a consolidation of ownership and uh, you know the mega corporations where balance of power has shifted in their favor just a bit? That's a not time for another podcast, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So. Let's talk about the biggest mistakes that you've seen companies make uh, what, and what they should have done instead. I'm sure all of us have uh, some stories. And if it gets too dark, if Owen leads us down a dark hole uh, and you want to just jump in with a story of, of when somebody did something really right or really smart that you were impressed by, 
that's fine too. We don't need to just go all negative and all positive. We can mix it up in between. Sure, I'll start. Um, I'm seeing stuff right now where I'm scratching my head going, how on earth did you get yourself into that situation? Um, I'm grateful that they weren't um, transactions that I have to say I own. Um, but I'll give you one example. So, and I've seen this time and time again. So this is an, an anomaly. It's, it happens actually somewhat routinely. Um, a company that will go unnamed leases a tremendous amount of space in Seattle during the pandemic when perceivably the sky was the limit. They were venture backed. Lots and lots of money was investing into this specific company. Uh, I bet their, their latest round was oversubscribed, in fact. Um, you can imagine the sentiment that that must create within the company, the positivity, the outlook on the future. And so they were naturally growing, needing more space, and they took a tremendous amount of real estate. I mean, about 20x what they were in at the current state. Um, and so fast forward to today, the world comes kind of to a screeching halt, interest rates go up significantly, and there's this perceived pullback of venture funding, which again, they were not a profitable company yet. Uh, they were marching towards that. And all of a sudden found themselves in literally double the amount of real estate they needed. Um, lease was scheduled to commence in March of this year, so they haven't even moved in. And the question I ask is like, where was there any sort of executive oversight by either the provider or the real estate director or this C-level executives where they said, well, maybe we just take this much space, but provide ourselves rights to expand into additional space should we need it. Um, instead, they took way more than they needed and now are in a position where they're trying to sublease space, which like we've talked about guys in this podcast, there's very little demand, not just for this type of space, but um, anyone that might want to take on a 10 year obligation. That's how long the lease is. And so um, huge mistake, one that probably won't bury the company, but is going to put a tremendous amount of financial distress uh, on their balance sheet as they try and um, cover the expense because the landlord's saying, hey, rent starts next month. <laughs> I expect it to show up on time. Yeah. And what an easily avoidable situation too. It's so easy to uh, stagger these expansions with uh, options to expand, first rights of refusals. There's so many different pathways to uh, to negotiating these without having to commit to taking all of the space up front. Um, and even if you had to commit to all of the space up front because it was a really competitive environment, oftentimes you can structure these where it's a phased takedown. Whereas right now, even if they were doing really well, they probably would be in you know, uh, 10 times as much space instead of 20 times as much space as they need. So if there is a, a mechanism to be able to stagger this growth and make some uh, create, create some flexibility for yourself in the event things don't go according to plan, you, you usually don't have to pay extra to do that. Um, almost never do you have to pay extra. Of course, the, the only concern then is that um, perhaps you're uh, a couple of years into a moderate duration lease and the landlord just saw that you raised a giant Series C or Series D. They know that you're in the middle of the lease term. It will be hard to sublease, disruptive to relocate and they have an extra floor on the building and they hold you hostage and they negotiate more aggressively than they would on that extra floor. But almost always, like nearly all of the time, you were better off creating more flexibility for yourself and paying nominally higher on your expansion space than being locked into two, three, four, five X the space where they are probably going to take 
most likely a 100% loss on that space over the next year because they won't be able to sublease it at economics that makes sense to do on a medium to long-term basis, which I'm sure is how long of a lease they sign. Yeah, so I've got a story. Uh, I'm not sure it falls into the category of mistake. It's just interesting. And I'm not going to name names. Um, the It was a 140,000 square foot headquarter relocation. And there was really only one building and a large, call it Fortune 300 um, media communications company relocating their headquarters. Um, the building was available that they wanted was available for sale by a, call it a network security defense contractor. Again, Fortune 500 company. These are big corporate players, right? And the... Uh, the communications company made an offer to buy the building and a competing offer to buy the building was made by a local real estate investor. Um, comparable price, both pretty much at the asking price. And what ended up happening is that the local investor, kind of clever, nimble, um, got the ear of the seller at the board level or at the C-suite somehow to make the case for their offer and basically said, look, we're offering a 30-day all-cash. We'll waive our contingencies in two weeks. Like we're in the business of buying that building. This other group, they're a corporate entity. They've got a board of directors. They've got to go for board approval. They've, they, they're obligated to perform some due diligence. They're going to find things. You've been in that building for 30 years. They're going to come back and try and retrade the deal. We're not going to do that. We're the best bet for you to sell the building. So they got themselves between this communications company buyer and this defense company seller, and they bought the building. They were chosen, they executed, they closed the escrow. Now this communications company has to reevaluate. It's the only building for them. It's no longer available for sale. Now this new owner is coming to them and saying, we'll lease it to you. They end up doing a 10-year lease with two five-year options. They've been in that building paying rent for 20 years. And over that time, it's more than doubled in value because that investor snuck up stream and put themselves between um, the buyer and the seller. They took over that role. What, what do you think? So, so John, in hindsight, what do you think you that this company could have done differently in that situation? I mean, it's hard to compete with an institutional buyer as an owner occupant. It can be very, very challenging for those exact reasons that you, you listed. Do you think that this is, um, you know, less a mistake and more a kind of circumstantial loss that would have been difficult to avoid? And it, with hindsight 2020, you could have paid more or moved faster or made more promises. But in the moment, is there a real learning and takeaway for that company? Or is it just a tough loss, like a bad beat? It's just a bad beat. And it points to, like when I got in the business, nobody bought buildings like that. Nobody bought buildings on 30-day escrow, all cash, no due diligence. And that's become kind of the game. Like, you know, fast-moving um, private money is willing to take on a certain amount of risk, even, even environmental, you know, no phase one, um, they're taking on real risk, but in doing so, they put themselves in the path of opportunity for sure. I'm not sure what you could do differently. It, it, it's the structure of the buyer. Um, it's hard for a corporate entity to compete with a nimble, deep pocketed private investor. 
Yeah. One of the other things that I want to talk about that is especially pertinent right now across all product types, whether it's industrial office or life sciences, or really any other asset type for that matter, is not understanding what your tenant improvement costs are going to be before signing the lease. And ideally, having some sort of preliminary kind of estimate before you even sign the letter of intent. If you get to the second or third round of lease comments, and then you find out that your tenant improvements are going to cost twice as much as you thought they were going to cost, that deal is either changing so dramatically that you have to go back for approvals over and over mutually on the tenant and landlord side, or that deal is just most likely not going to happen. So figuring out a way to really understand what your needs are upfront and get some swag numbers sooner than later. So you can say, okay, we think it's going to cost a hundred bucks a foot plus or minus 20% or 30%. Or if it's an industrial building, here are the things that we need to include. This is what the landlord's doing at their cost. They're giving us an allowance of $5 a square foot. And that money is going to go towards lights, levelers, and some of our uh, material handling equipment charging stations. And what it's not going to cover is this. And we think it's going to cost between a million and a million five. Like you have to understand what these are. Um, ideally, before you sign the letter of intent um, and in really hot markets, maybe there's an argument to be made to say, you know, you'll move forward and lock up the building so you don't lose it to somebody else and you'll, you know, take a little bit more risk. But in a softer market like today for office space, when you have um, tenant improvement costs at a historical high, I mean, it's never been more expensive to construct office space than it is today, which is another big challenge that the office market has ahead of itself. So you have to understand what these costs are going to be. Well, Tucker and I have a transaction working on together for a client of ours where the landlord is affording us a chance to move and downsize um, into a space that requires zero out-of-pocket um, capital, uh, yet, the, yet the improvement, uh, the, sorry, the lease rate is higher than we probably would have liked. And our client got kind of tied around the axle around the cost. Um, but once you factor in all the CapEx that Tucker's talking about, especially in an environment today, most CFOs in corporate America are looking at managing spend, especially on CapEx. Um, the transaction actually turned out to be very advantageous for us to proceed with, given the little to zero out-of-pocket capital, um, despite paying a slightly higher rate. So it's easy. I've had so many cases in my career where, you know, landlord says this is a proposal and, you know, the rate may not be what we desire. And in some cases, more than others, we have clients that get pretty frustrated with the rate, but you've got to understand the CapEx component of the transaction because that is such a massive component of the overall spend, rent and CapEx, that if you don't model that, in addition to moving costs and IT and telephony expenses and so forth, uh, you really don't get the full picture. Uh, in some cases, optically, you might be looking like you're paying a higher rate, but reality is a much better deal. You know, good point, Owen, on FF&E. I think another area you could do that that... You have landlords now that need to keep face rents up, right? So they have to keep face rents up to provide more TIs. Companies really need to look at what the implications of that those types of transactions are on their P&L, right? Look at it from a gap perspective and cash because both are really important. But on the P&L, there's advantages uh, or disadvantages depending on what's important, especially if you're looking at uh, EBITDA with the higher TIs reducing your, your above-the-line P&L expense. But what I've been successful doing is landlords landlords want to try to hide, hide, quote unquote, not unethically, just hide as much cost as they can. So 
doing enhanced base building deliveries has been a, a strategy I've really used with a lot of clients where you get the landlords to put your T-bar ceilings in if you're going to go in that direction. You have them distribute your HVAC per your plan. You have them put flooring in. You have them put lighting in. And it's still delivered as part of the base building, but there could be $10, $20, $30 in cost that they get to throw into the deal, still get the rate, face rates they want, and the client doesn't have to take all the cash. Not to mention, they're also able to delay the commencement date of the lease because under gap accounting, the commencement date of the lease is the turnover date for tenant improvements. And if they've delayed turning over the space by two or three months doing this work, the, the second benefit of that is that a lot of times on these larger transactions, the space is sitting there vacant, ready to turn over. And you go to sign a lease and a landlord might say, okay, we're going to want to turn this over to you or give you possession sooner than later. You may have clients that say, wait a minute, I don't want possession until a period where I can be done with my construction drawings. I don't want possession until I can actually start swinging hammers. And this is a very good way to be able to justify that and um, improve the deal in a, in a kind of creatively structured way. We have a future podcast coming purely on creative deal structuring with a emphasis and focus on all of the uh, accounting rules, which have changed quite a bit over the last decade. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Tucker. Uh, more to come. But I think one of the more stories I'd like to uh, I'd like to share is really around you know, some of the best directors of real estate and some of the more challenged ones that I've, I've worked with forget that the key part of their job is to direct the real estate, is really to be the quarterback and be the liaison. <laughs> People are laughing at me for whatever reason, but it's true. They need to be the quarterback between their business units, us brokers, and also ultimately their, their internal teams and their strategy, right? Align your internal teams. Don't allow the business units to, to, to drive the end result in what your real estate portfolio is going to look like because their job is to run their business. Their job is to grow the business. Their job is to create profits for the company. There's a lot of resources behind the scenes that need to help align them first with a real estate strategy. And that's the quarterback and that's the director of real estate. And I've seen the best ones do it so well to really push back and challenge and work with their businesses to understand how real estate translates to people, how it translates to their growth and how it's a real asset to them rather than something that's either drawing on their uh, on their cost and pulling their P&L down or one that just is misaligned and you don't have enough space or too much space. The best ones are also very much aligned and in lockstep with their CFOs, I find, um, where they understand what the CFO is trying to achieve um, with what is arguably one of the biggest expenses of the company. And so it saves a tremendous amount of time and headaches when there's alignment between the director of real estate and the CFO so that when we are given an assignment and told what we are to achieve, um, we're not having to then, you know, circle back at the end and find out that it never, no longer meets the metrics that was prescribed. Yeah, I, cool. I think, sorry, sorry, Tucker, but just to, on that thought, the, the, the story I have is that, you know, the, the, the business units are put out projections for their businesses and their growth for their businesses. And what I've been finding recently is there's a, there's a misalignment between their hiring 
uh, goals within a particular market or a particular office with what actually reality is in that market. Now things may change because companies are are changing their their employee footprint. But if you if you're growing an office and you think you can hire 250 people in you know in Boston, well have you have you really worked with the HR team and understood if those jobs exist, if they're available, and if the price point that you're willing to spend? Because you may never those people on paper could be there, and you may want to grow your business there. But if you can't hire the people at the right cost and the right timeline, is Boston really the place you want to be? And that's those are challenges. And I see companies making those mistakes all the time. Um, certainly not clients of mine, hopefully, but I've seen it. There's some big names in this market that have massive amounts of vacant space because they haven't been able to hit their hiring goals over the last, not just the last year, over the last, say, five years. So between the four of us, I bet we've collectively worked on um, several thousand different projects. And my observation based on everything that we've been saying so far on the podcast, but also the real world experience of working with all these companies, and I, I think you all will agree with this, is the single highest correlation between a successful real estate outcome um, and a, versus a bad one or a mediocre one is the ability of the entire team at the company involved in the real estate project to really understand what the business's overall objectives are and how that translates to the real estate. And when you when you think about, you know, Brian stating the obvious earlier, like, okay, director of real estate directs the real estate. It's like, I'm a real estate broker, you know, I broker real estate. Um, but like, joking aside, right? They're, the, the sole job of these real estate departments is to align the real estate strategy with the overall business goals. And so often that doesn't happen, right? So often they're out there saying, oh, well, um, so-and-so told us that, you know, our CEO told us that we need 20,000 square feet. Meanwhile, the CEO isn't a real estate person. They don't understand the market. They don't understand all the different levers that you might pull, the costs that go into it. You go work on a project for two or three months with some minor direction from an executive level person. And then you come back and present the deal for final approval. And you think it's exactly what the CEO wants. I should say like the director of real estate thinks it's exactly what the executive team wants. Meanwhile, it's completely wrong. It's over budget. It's the wrong part of town. It doesn't provide, it doesn't hit all of the metrics that they're trying to hit. The really good real estate outcomes have uh, like perfect alignment between what the business needs and what actually happens. And, and that probably is fairly obvious when you, when you think about that, like good outcomes uh, are aligned with the business, but it, it happens unfortunately quite rarely. And uh, I would go as far to say, and I know all of us do uh, a decent amount of investing in different companies with a particular focus on tech. This is one of the early signals that I look for to decide whether I'm going to invest in a company. If there is high alignment between the executive team and the director of real estate or the facilities team, the people that are running real estate, and they really understand what the business's objectives are and how the real estate supports that, that means that in every other area of the company, they probably have this similar understanding of the business's mission and are probably going to be more successful than anyone else that is not in that situation. Yeah, and, and I would tell you this too, it's not only to translate the needs of the businesses, it's to be proactive and get out to your businesses. And because how many times have you gotten into a situation where a client is in, is in growth mode or, or, or reduction, they're, they're shrinking, and the business units have no idea how long it actually takes 
to do a real estate transaction. How long you need to be ahead of your expiration or how long from the day that you say go, you could actually move into space. It's, it's two, three, four X what they think. Or on the flip side, how long and how difficult it is to unwind a transaction and either sublease, terminate, or give back space, right? So, so to be proactive, to be working with your teams to say like, look, we see, we see the numbers too. We see the business growing. We see the business shrinking. Here are some things you need to be thinking about on how to align that to your real estate. And working, you know, as a broker, arming directors of real estate and having directors of real estate really understand that they need to be proactively working with their teams on both sides. When the, so when the order comes, a lot of the work's already done. Well, and I think the, let's talk about proactivity too, uh, Brian. I, I work with one real estate director who I think is one of the best in the, in the industry. And he has allowed us to help them mine for opportunities. And what I mean by that is that you're not just looking out at your portfolio. Let's say you've got 100, 200 locations around the world looking at expiration dates, termination dates, renewal option dates is like how that's going to influence your transactions for the balance of the year, but rather looking at your portfolio and mining for opportunities. And so what I mean by that is that, especially in today's market where there's such a lack of demand for, for let's say office space, where are there are opportunities where you're either in too much space, too little space, or your rent is a fraction of, or sorry, over what market might be. There might be a case where we can mark our rent to market or be in a space that is much more appropriately sized for the team um, and generate tremendous savings in fiscal year 2023, even. Um, and the best, so my point is, I think proactivity is not just looking at your portfolio and reacting to dates that require some sort of decision, but looking for opportunities where we can save money. That's a great point. You're absolutely right. So let me go back, Tucker, to what you started with, because I think you're onto something really central and really important. It's this idea that oftentimes it's the tenant improvements that are a source of great risk and complexity, and it's something that trips up a lot of transactions. And so I like to say this, uh, big deals are better for so many reasons. Uh, and one of those reasons is that we, when it's big enough to warrant a project manager, a construction manager, one of our team members, who can come in and develop for me a preliminary project budget and a preliminary project timeline so that when we're negotiating for this building, we actually know what it's going to cost and we actually know how long it's going to take to build it out. We can use that to defend it to the landlord and the request for the tenant improvement allowance. Here's why we need $120 a foot. Here's the budget. And oh, by the way, it, let's look below the line at the FF&E so the tenant can have their wrap their arms around what their total spend is going to be. But man, and so I guess my point is smaller transactions where we don't have them involved, that's often where we need to double down and, you know, I like the large transactions. I like when I've got my team members that are making me super smart on what it's going to cost and how long it's going to take to build. Yeah. Yet equally as important when you're working with a company that has facilities of all size all around the world, you need to figure out how to have impeccable execution on projects of all size. And even though being over budget by 30 bucks or 50 bucks per square foot on a 5,000 square foot space isn't tens of millions of dollars that might really negatively impact the bottom line of a company, the, uh, the, the cumulative impact of messing that up once or twice or 10 times in a portfolio with 200 locations is really severe. And um, directors of real estate need to be able to, and, and also companies at large need to be able to forecast and budget properly for these spaces and then execute. And um, in many ways, if you can't do it on a small space, then you probably shouldn't even be trying to do it on a large space. 
Yeah, I would tell you, directors of real estate that that put the right teams. I mean, I work with some of the most talented directors of real estate in the industry. I just I, I'm amazed every day at how how good they are at their job. And and one of the things they do is they they rely on my team to to do what we do best first and foremost right and the other thing they do is that they build the right team around them to be able to because you think about it like there's a lot of brokers in this industry and everybody starts to focus especially when you're these hybrid brokers that work for landlords and, and tenants everyone focuses on the rent or the ti well how much cost is really built into a real estate transaction that doesn't sit with rent or TI or free rent, right? But those are the three things that landlord brokers focus on because that creates value in the building for the owner. Well, that doesn't create value for the tenant. There's so much cost buried in a lease and buried in a deal. It's outside of those three pieces that a real good tenant rep broker knows and a good director of real estate knows and gets info and builds budgets and schedules and aligns all the people and really it gets into this the deep weeds with you on a lease where landlord brokers and landlords don't care about it because they just pass all those costs on to tenants and they just don't care. And brokers that don't work for tenants at that level don't understand it. It's just, there's it a fundamental flaw in, in a lot of the brokers that they just don't get it for how tenants work and how tenants look at cost. One of the things that I've observed as being really impressive when companies can do this is Obviously, uh, there's been a lot of M&A, um, particularly of, of smaller companies that are, you know, failing to raise additional capital or, um, you know, companies that are just getting gobbled up by these larger companies that have higher earnings multiples or might have good performance. But um, it, a lot of times in these acquisitions, the company that is being acquired might have different views around what is optimal for the real estate. And this gets back to what we were talking about earlier of how do you best align the real estate for the overall business's goals, not just the division's goals, but the entire company's bottom line, shareholder value, whatever that they are you know, trying to pursue. One thing that I've observed is that a lot of times when these people have a differing of opinions, it will be related around growth, right? It will be, hey, we've always been in this location. We're 100 people. We're growing to 200 or 300 people. And this is somewhat related to what Brian was saying earlier around can you actually hire that amount of people in that geography and being able to convince a company that's been acquired to go somewhere else to relocate where their team is to go to the next location that's going to allow their business to go forward you have all of the local executives that have been involved in an acquisition their company's been acquired how do you keep them happy while also being able to locate the business in a spot that is going to be most effective for hiring the next 200, 300, 400 people. And if that location isn't in the right spot, being able to have a very clear message to bring everyone in, bring people together and say, this is why we're doing this. It's not because we're not listening. It's not because we're trying to punish people and make them drive further. It's because in order to hire these people, based on all of the data we've evaluated, we need to be in this location. Um, and that's why we're making this decision. I've been really impressed with companies that been, have been able to make those hard decisions that upset some people, but are ultimately in the greater good of the company. I, I, I agree that the ones, the companies that get it right are the ones that you see, uh, you know, on the front page for the good reasons. They, they get it right. And it starts obviously with the C-suite and it comes down, but they have really talented people working in change management and real estate and HR and all of the soft services that help deliver it. And real estate really is engaging all of those people and building the strategies. I mean, it's 
it's a really, you know, I, I think the early in my career, the directors of real estate, I think they were really focused on being transaction oriented. Let's go. Their job was to hire a broker and go do a deal. Right. And, and it was a different broker in every market, a different, you know, every building. We didn't, we didn't have all these metrics around efficiency and we didn't have all this new class, especially in this market, didn't have these new buildings coming to market and really understanding how companies use space and layout space and, and how you can really look at all the different layers of cost. And it was, I'm going to hire a broker, we're going to go do a deal and we're going to compare the marketplace. I mean, I'm sitting in a building today that because of an increased base building um, security standard by, a, a, by State Street, with this building here, their tax and operating expenses are almost $10 a foot higher than another building. It's insane. They have guards at every entrance of the parking garage on every level. You have two guards at the top of the ramp, the bottom of the ramp. They have these big, massive uh, things that come out of the ground that stop you from going in or out. If you're not, you know, if you're not allowed, there's 12, 13 guards in the, in the lobby. It's just insane. Right. But Tenants will make will look at it, and if they don't have they don't have the right team in place, they'll look at it and say, "Oh, this building, that building, this building, the rent's all the same. Let's go make a decision." And you still see see companies making those types of you know you get in after you get in after decisions made. Why'd you end up in the building? Well, it was the lowest cost option. Well, did you know that you know your expenses are increasing at you know two or three x the market? No, we didn't. You know, that wasn't identified for us. So, um, it's. The, 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 the industry's come a long way and it's really been uh, a pleasure to work with talented people who have who have um, grown in the industry in those positions to be able to, to to do really complex things and help deliver a product. I mean, it's what wakes me up every day. You're delivering something for the people that's better than average and it's better than what they're used to and it exceeds expectations. I think now is no better time and to have really talented people inside an organization to help figure out, um, figure out how to get people in the office and to do it the, at the, at the pace and at the, um, at the, the, the use of what they want, right? Why do they come? What do you use it for? So I, I love it. It's a great conversation. Not to undermine what any of us do or what any corporate real estate brokers do out there, but at the end of the day, having the right corporate real estate strategy is way more important than brokering deals. Like if you could pick between having perfect execution of a, the right real estate strategy for a company versus perfect negotiations of a lease or an entire portfolio of leases or a portfolio of real estate, a hundred out of a hundred times, having the better corporate real estate strategy is going to be more cost-effective and way better operationally for the organization. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of brokers have this level of arrogance around what they do. Well, I negotiate the lease or I do this, not realizing that um, the role of, of a broker in interacting with a real estate director in a company is to really lead all of real estate, help make sure that not only is the, the lease being negotiated impeccably, but the strategy in the first place is perfect or as close to perfect as you can get based on the information you have at the time. And I, I think that there is a percentage of the real estate world that doesn't realize that and doesn't realize that over the last 10, 20 years, the role of a real estate advisor has changed so significantly to be much more advisory focused around, this is what you should do and why, this is what our other clients are doing and why they're doing it. Here are some things that you should consider. Here are the internal stakeholders that probably would have very valuable input for you and have historically on our other projects that we should bring into the fold to make this more of a success than it would be without their feedback.
Let me add, add to that. When I started in the business, um, there were people that would tell me that, you know, it wasn't too long ago, this is back when I started, that availabilities and you, you knowing what was out in the market came over fax. So think about that. Like landlords would fax in their availabilities every week to the brokerage house. The brokers would then know what is currently available. And the role of a broker, this is 30 years ago, was really knowing where the spaces were. You were a tour guide and you got paid to be a tour guide. I love my job. I love this career. I've been doing it for almost 20 years, but showing space and running surveys for companies, if I had just rank like what I fulfilled with in my job would be the lowest fulfillment factor of my job. Um, what we get paid for and what people rely on us for are really, like you said, Tucker, you know, helping set direction and challenging the status quo and offering our thoughts. I always say the best relationships with clients are those that afford me the opportunity to challenge my client's thinking. Ultimately, they're going to make the decision. It's their real estate. It's their money. Um, but if I'm not afforded a chance to challenge their thinking when I think they might be wrong, then it's not usually the optimal relationship um, and one that I still am thankful for. But I see the most highest performing companies with their real estate are those where it really there's a lot of time spent up front evaluating opportunities and what direction they go with versus just running to the car to jump in and go look at real estate. Can I say that a different way? I, I agree with yeah. everything you just said. And when I got in the business, I don't even want to talk about it, in the 1980s, <laughs> 1990s, like the job of the broker was to find the building. That's right. what you're saying. And we, yes, we used to keep manila folders with hard copies of brochures and the fax was kind of cool at the time. Uh, the point being, and, and then along came the online listing service, right? LoopNet and CoStar. The biggest brokerage houses resisted the notion of a co-star, an online database for all the property information. They were threatened that if everybody had access to the property information, then what was their role? It was going to, it was going to minimize their role as a broker because the broker's role was to find those buildings. And now the clients can find them online on LoopNet on their own. Now, what are we going to do? And so the, the smartest tenant rep shops folks realized that the role of the broker is changing. It's no longer about finding the building. Yes, we do that for you. And that's not our key value add. So what can you layer on top of that? This consulta consultative advisory, like let's get smart about real estate strategy. Let's align the objectives of the business, but it's no longer about finding the building. And some people still think that's the role of the broker, but the industry's moved way beyond that. So just to change gears a little bit, uh, one of the other things I, I find that a really talented director of real estate does is that they, you get to the point where it's a lot of work to get to a lease. And I've found the tendency that many, uh, many companies really rely on the attorneys to take it from term sheet to lease to execution. Some of the best directors of real estate really stay involved through that process because if you look at a the lease, there's all the legal terms and then the business terms. There's a lot of business terms that we personally try to front load into an LOI. And, you know, you get to those 40, 50 point LOIs, they get challenging at times and you have to get more streamlined. But those points, you know, like down to force majeure and, and, or insurance or all of your option language and really digging in and not relying on just the attorneys to do it. Because the attorneys look at it from a different perspective. And some of my best clients and people that I admire in the industry from who sit in those chairs really stay involved right to lease execution and are really figuring out all of the mechanics of a lease. And these are larger leases, obviously, but all of the mechanics of a lease uh, that, that need their attention. 
Okay, we need to start wrapping up the podcast. Uh, I have a final thought that I'd like to share, and then I believe that uh, my co-hosts likely will have final thoughts of their own. Um, I think the thing that I want to highlight in closing is just that if you're a director of real estate or somebody that handles corporate real estate in-house for a company, and you're listening to this and going, oh my gosh, a lot of these things that they've talked about are intimidating. I don't know about them. Um, I, uh, of course, am encouraging you to uh, learn and improve and grow. That's what's really fun and what we enjoy and what life is all about. But don't be too hard on yourself. I mean, I would rate anyone that is extremely high integrity, really cares about the outcome, is doing their utmost to produce the best possible result they're capable of. If you're doing those three things, you are probably already in the top 20% of all directors of real estate out there. So keep those things at the forefront. Those are the most important things. And then to the extent that you're able to work on your technical ability to do a lot of the things that we've talked about during this podcast, that's just an opportunity to get even better than you already are. It's a great point, Ducker. Very smart. It's true. I think my closing thought, uh, similar lines, is you know I've I've seen been around long enough and seen people grow in this industry. And I and there's organizations that will help you get uh, is sitting as a you know as a director of real estate organizations that really help you um, personally and professionally get better at your job. The I think that my my takeaway is use. Use your your network or use your broker's network or use our network, quite frankly, to help you meet people that are in your chair, that have more experience, that have been doing it longer. And really, I've seen people really grow because they've created a strong network around them, even if it's if it's remote. Right. If you're sitting in, you know, the Midwest and, and relationships you have on the East Coast or West Coast or down in down in Dallas for even uh, build a network because there's. There's no situation that probably anyone of the four of us collectively have never seen or our network has not seen in, in building a strong network that you can bounce ideas off or things off of. Uh, people are really supportive in this industry and people that are good at it and do it. They don't do it for the money. They don't do it for the, for the fame. They do it because they really like helping people and helping companies with people in them succeed. And I've built a really strong network that way. And it's great to, opportunities to talk to people. Uh, and get really sound advice with situations you haven't dealt with before. Mine would be just simply suspend disbelief in the outcome that you think or going into the transaction or uh, assignment you think is just not possible. Um, My favorite transactions, and again, I've been doing this almost 20 years, have been those that early on seemed inconceivable, or they were either too expensive, or the location didn't work, or the building didn't work based on what we were trying to achieve. and through a little you know, hard work and creativity, they came together and the clients could not be happier. Um, and so again, like nobody knows at the beginning of the transaction where things may land, but if you allow yourself to be creative, be curious, not judgmental, um, the outcomes can sometimes surprise you. You know, my favorite part of this podcast was, Owen, when you described your relationship with one of your clients, a director of real estate who effectively empowered you to look into the portfolio for creative opportunities. And for me, that's the magic of it, right? This idea that um, relationships where the client might challenge us, invite us, trust us to do more is where we can really expand our relationship and our role and our value add. Um, That's a feel good relationship and and, uh, 
I love that. Love that that uh, we have that opportunity to, to build that kind of a trust relationship with our clients. There you have it. The lightning round, the final comments, very thoughtful and thought provoking comments from everyone. Uh, with that, that concludes episode three of the Corporate Real Estate Insider. We will be back in two weeks with an episode around creative deal structuring and gap accounting implications, things related to that to help you make smarter real estate transactions. Uh, if you're not in real estate, that's probably going to be an episode to uh, stay home for <laughs> and not listen to. Uh, planning to go into a lot of detail uh, around sort of the cutting edge techniques of optimizing these deal structures. Uh, we look forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.